Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're listening to episode 140 of the Marathon Running Podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you a very inspirational story. This is the Marathon Running Podcast by Letty and Ryan from We Got The Runs. Join us in our running community for weekly content that is motivational, educational, and inspirational and let the marathon running podcast take you from the starting line to the finish line and beyond hey runners and welcome to episode 140 hi letty and runners hey ryan how's it going i'm doing well how about you Doing very well, too. Excited for this episode. Uh, we have a very inspirational story with our guest being Maria Bendek. She is a physician that resides in Florida who is also a cancer survivor and started running when she was kind of in, in the middle of, of going through all of that. So that's super inspirational. And I'm really happy that she shared all this with us because I know it's a tough topic to talk about, but it's also really, you know, it, it gives us a lot of hope because who knows when we're going to find ourselves in bad situations. Even people that are lucky to not have any or not have those types of difficulties can put perspective on, you know, less critical difficulties that they have in their life. I agree. I feel like if we put stuff into perspective, um, I feel like you come out, if when you come out on the other side, you're probably a lot tougher and your life will never be the same. But it's kind of like she'll, you'll hear her say in her interview, there's a new normal. And I'm sure it has a lot less tedious things or, you know, things you'd worry about beforehand. I think those things are easier to get over once you've really experienced something like she did. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at, I guess. And it's just like people that have to go through a lot tend to just think of some of the positives in life and dwell on those more instead of the negatives. And that's something everyone could probably take advantage of. Yes. And it's too often, unfortunately, that we hear cancer stories that don't turn out the way hers did. Um, and I feel like we should give her a voice because, I mean, there are a lot of stories where there's a really good outturn with it, too. And that's what we should listen to just to give us hope, to strengthen us um, if your or our loved one is in a situation like that. But that's not the only reason why I asked her to come onto our show. I asked her because she's a very inspirational person and she has done the world major marathons almost twice. She's missing one of her second set of six stars, Tokyo. And she also is very into the running community. I went to one of her dinners that she hosted up in Chicago and I met so many runners. I think there was 20 to 30 people just for a, a, a dinner. Um, so, you know, it's really cool. So she'll talk about that to us as well. That's neat that she's ran so many of those majors or done them even twice. 
Yes, a lot of traveling for her. She's con- and she actually was um, at the Honolulu Marathon. I mentioned her in our previous episode as well. She was the person that I went to the marathon with. It's great having to gotten to know her, and I want to share that with you, listeners. So, are you ready for uh, my talk with her? Without further ado, we are now going to play her interview. All right, so I'm here with Maria Bendek. Maria, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Letty. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I'm glad you joined because you have a very inspiring, very positive story. So I wanted to have you share your story about how you started running and how you fought cancer and everything else that's going on in your super inspirational life right now. So how about we start with you introducing yourself briefly, just tell us, you know, who you are, what you do and where you live. Okay. So I am Maria Bendik, as you introduced. I am an internal medicine physician that practices hospital medicine in Naples, Florida. And uh, basically, I've been a resident of Southwest Florida most of my life. I moved here when I was uh, seven years old, grew up in Fort Myers and just loved the area and stayed in the area and now reside in Naples, Florida. Um, in terms of how I got into running, running was just something I always kind of liked to do. It was just like a fun, easy activity that really required, you know, no gym membership or any athletic equipment. You basically just put on some shoes and you go outside and run. And periodically, you know, I would, uh, you know, get into running on and off, you know, through middle school, high school, and then in college. But then I always had the dream of running the New York City Marathon. Just something about that marathon and New York City, and it just seemed very special. So in 2012, I got invited by a charity organization called uh, Reach Granada that helps abandoned and abused children in the Caribbean to run the New York City Marathon for them. And that's when my marathon passion started. I was very excited. I got really into it. But shortly within a month of accepting the invitation is when I found out I had advanced stage thyroid cancer. And that came as a shock. I'm a pretty determined person and I'm a person that likes to stick to my word. So I basically, when I was told that, the first question was not what's my prognosis, not what my treatment is, but can I still run the New York City Marathon in November? I was fortunate enough to find a team of doctors at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio that were compassionate and understanding of the mind of a patient. And I think this is, if I ever give advice anyone going through medical illness or cancer, it would be find a doctor that understands you and gets you. Because as much medicine and treatment that I can give you, the mental state of a patient is the most crucial thing in recovery. And I've had patients that have a positive mindset and a negative mindset. And the ones with the positive mindset over and over and over do much better. And actually, a couple of years ago, I forgot the exact year, there was a study done, 
in one of the medical journals, I believe it was the New England Medicine, that did say where they were, they took two types of patients with the exact expectations in terms of outcomes. And the ones that had either a set of beliefs, had people praying for them, or positive attitudes did much better than the ones that either had no social support, no system of beliefs, or just support in general. Um, so I am a big proponent of that. So basically, you know, what kept me going through my thyroid cancer treatment was running. Um, and, you know, so we did have to stop the training and we did have to modify the training. Obviously, I wasn't going to break a record. The goal was to be able to run 26.2 miles, but it kept me going and it kept me going on different levels. Number one, I would focus on the kids I'm helping. So that way I couldn't throw myself a pity party because I was um, 40 years old, you know, and that's pretty young when you get a terrible diagnosis like that. That really kind of alters a lot of your plans and your future and what you're thinking. But when sometimes you can shift the focus away from yourself and just fixate on something else, that helps. At least it helped me. And then the other insane notion in my head was that if I could make it to the start of the New York City Marathon and run it, I would survive. And I know some people think that's pretty crazy. But again, in my head, if you ever hear the lyrics to uh, Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, it says, if I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. And that kind of was the theme that was instilled in my head. That is a lot. And I want to kind of backtrack a little bit because, wow, so you were 40 years old. You had no idea that you had this thyroid cancer growing in your body. But maybe you can tell us, since you are a medical professional, a little bit about what that means, advanced stage thyroid cancer. Well, this, go, this leads into why preventive medicine is very important. You know, I was always very healthy and never thought about getting sick. And unfortunately, sometimes healthcare workers have in their notion that they're immune to disease, and obviously that is not true. So had I had probably routine physicals um, where they do a neck check, I probably would have caught it a lot earlier. And what happened was, it didn't get caught early, so it was just spreading. And by advance, it's how far it goes into your body. So for me, it had spread into outside the thyroid bed because usually stage one is only in the thyroid. And then depending how far it spreads is how they categorize it. And in my case, it had spread all the way into my neck and lymph nodes. How did you find it? So it's quite funny how I found that. So I was, and this is not a symptom of thyroid cancer. I was feeling really, really tired. And I was like, why am I always tired? And my sister, older sister and mother have thyroid disease, but they're hypothyroid, just where their thyroid stops producing enough hormone. And sometimes when your thyroid stops producing enough hormone, it enlarges. So I thought, oh, I'm probably just becoming hypothyroid like my sister and mother, and my thyroid's probably going to be big. So I started touching my neck and examining my thyroid, 
And right away, I felt this like hard nodule. And I could tell it did not feel right. It, it, it felt like something that should not be there. But again, in my head, I rationalized, oh, I'm a hypochondriac. It's nothing. It's going to go away. And I didn't really think about it. And this is the unfortunate part, which I really don't like saying this. I did actually get regular checkups. But unfortunately, the person that was doing my checkups was a friend. And sometimes this is why it's not good to have your friends as your physicians. Because when I would walk into his office, it was more social hour. And he never really ever examined me. We would just go over the routine lab work. So, and I never thought to say, hey, why aren't you examining me? Because of course I thought, hey, I feel great. I'm healthy. I'm, a, you know, I work out, I train. So when that particular day I was complaining, I don't feel well, I feel tired. He kept saying, no, it's because you're running. It's because you have a, an intense work schedule. But for whatever reason, he decided to sit me up on the table and examine me that day. And he um, examined my neck and felt it. And he goes, did you know you had something here? And then I remembered that I had it because I literally had forgotten. And this was just only like two, three weeks different. So it's not like I sat on this for like years. And I said, oh, yeah, I thought I felt something and it was going to go away. He goes, oh, you know, no, it's something. And he goes, we should biopsy it. And then I said, okay. And uh, so we went and we biopsied it and, you know, it came back cancer. Um, and then this is the second advice that I give to anyone dealing with cancer is always get a second opinion. And the reason I say that was because the first opinion I got was, again, not a favorable one. It was like, oh, this could be cancer. Maybe it's not cancer. And there was a lot of... Um, they were being ambiguous. And then on top of that, when I was asking questions, they were like, well, you're a doctor. Why don't you read the guidelines? And, you know, again, you have to remember how your physician is treating you. And this is not about physician bashing, but it's an important to have a good doctor-patient relationship. And I was being treated like a doctor and not like a patient. And that's not good. When you're a physician that gets sick, you need to be let yourself be treated like a patient. You shouldn't be trying to drive your treatment. So I didn't like what was being said. And that's when someone uh, told me, you know, this is cancer and you don't want to F with it. And that was the best advice that was ever given to me. And then that's when I went to the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio for a second opinion you know, and I also wanted a very specialized surgeon. And I thought we were just stage one, where it would just require having my thyroid taken out. And that's where when you go to a cancer center for a second opinion, they do everything from scratch. And that's when they redid my ultrasound, they redid everything. And that's when they discovered that the first ultrasound was read wrong. And actually, the cancer had spread. And that's how we found out it was advanced stage because uh, it wasn't confined just to the thyroid. It had gone outside the thyroid. And thankfully, um, that saved my life because one of the main treatments for th thyroid cancer is surgical. You have to really try to get everything out as much as possible. And the rest you treat with radioactive iodine 
And that really saved my life, getting that second opinion, discovering that it had spread. What was the prognosis? What did they tell you? What do you have to expect? Was there chemotherapy, surgery? Obviously, you said that. But what else was uh, supposed to happen? What did they tell you can expect? So there's different types of thyroid cancer. So for the one that I had, the treatment was going to be obviously surgical, which was uh, I had a total thyroidectomy with neck dissection. And then the follow-up would be high-dose radioactive iodine. And then what happens is you get the high-dose radioactive iodine, and then you wait X amount of time, and then they repeat the scans, and then they decide whether you need to get the dose again or not. And that's how you treat it. And then if you fail at that, that's when you consider chemotherapy. But thankfully, you know, I got a very a high dose of radioactive iodine and the first uh, dose that they gave me did the trick. And my follow-up scans were negative or not negative. The doctors will never say negative. They say no detectable disease, but that's what you want to hear, no detectable disease because thyroid cancer is always microscopic and it's always in your bloodstream. And that's why another part of the treatment is that they uh, keep your thyroid levels or your TSH uh, suppressed. So you take very high doses of thyroid medicine because by doing that, it suppresses any thyroid tissue anywhere in your body uh, from growing again. So each year, you know, the each year that goes by, your risk goes down. And then by the time you hit your five-year um, time frame where there's no detectable disease, then your risk of reoccurrence keeps decreasing. And this uh, past year, I completed my 10-year anniversary. So right now, my risk of recurrence, I would say, is probably low. But again, we're talking about specific types of cancer, and we're talking about the type of cancer, thyroid cancer I have. This does not apply to all thyroid cancers, and it does not apply to different types of cancers, such as breast or colon, you know, everybody else is individual and different. Yeah. And um, I mean, I guess knowing that you are in medicine, how, how did you feel when you got your diagnosis? Because like you alluded to, you kind of, as a physician, I imagine you see it a lot, but you're always kind of above it because other people have it and not you. So how, how did that affect you? So that's a good question. You know, I'm viewed and I feel myself as a very strong, independent individual. So when I was first diagnosed, I actually kept it a secret because I was afraid that my colleagues would view me less. Like I was afraid that they would say, oh, poor Maria, or that the physicians that refer to me would stop because they would say, oh, maybe we shouldn't send her patients because she's sick and not capable of doing her job. So I was uh, concerned that I would be viewed as a weakling. But, you know, as I processed the cancer and, you know, after the surgery, and I realized, you know what, I don't stay quiet. And, you know, and then I started opening up and, and sharing. And I really loved the support that I got. It was a very supportive community. Um, I raised like over $10,000 that year for my charity. And it wasn't so much that people were wanting to support the charity, but they were wanting to support me. And by donating to what I was doing, that was their way of supporting me. So that really touched me and meant a lot. And it also, I feel, 
made me be a better patient because it helped me connect with my patients. I think once as a physician, you become a patient, you get a greater understanding for things. And again, what the mindset of a patient is. Um, And sometimes, not always, you know, I always keep my professional boundaries, but I do open up in certain cases and with certain patients and share my story or tell them that I can relate to what they're feeling. And I think that helps the patients and their family feels better. So I think overall, it made me a better physician. Yeah, yeah. And you're able to also spread hope at a place where, you know, actually at your work. So that's, that's pretty cool. How about your treatment? So you said you had injections. And how long did that whole process last? So how long were you kind of sitting on hot coals to know whether or not this is actually working for your body? So in 2012, in July, I had the surgery, I had a thyroidectomy with a total neck dissection. So that's where they go in, they took out the thyroid, they took out the lymph nodes, and they took out the muscle and dissected all the parts of the neck that had the cancer. So then after that, you wait six weeks. And during that time, now you have no thyroid. So um, normally, when you don't have a thyroid, you have to take thyroid supplement, but they don't let you take thyroid supplement, because the goal is to make you what's called hypothyroid. Hypothyroid means that you do not have any thyroid hormone in you or that you're low. And they do that on purpose because they want your body to be starving for the thyroid. So when they give you the radioactive pill, any part of your body that still has thyroid tissue is going to take it and it's going to kill it because it's the radioactivity in the iodine that's going to kill your thyroid because thyroid works on iodine. And another part of the treatment is you have to be on a low iodine diet, which is a very strict, terrible diet. Like you cannot eat almost anything. You have to be very careful that there's no iodine in any food because, again, you want to deplete the body. So when you take the radioactive iodine capsule, it any part of the thyroid cancer that's in your body, it absorbs it and it kills it. So, so six weeks go by. They let your TSH level go really high, like they want at least 75 or above. Normal thyroid levels are usually between two and four. So when you become hypothyroid, it's like you're extremely exhausted. Uh, you become swollen. You develop cold intolerance, all sets of symptoms. But unfortunately, you have to do that on purpose to be able to make the treatment effective. So then... You take six weeks later, went by, I went, you know, back to the hospital in Cleveland. And then that's when you take the capsule, you're in isolation for the three days, they're monitoring your radioactive levels. And then when they go down safely, then you're allowed to leave the hospital. But when you leave the hospital, you still have to be in isolation for like two weeks, because you still have a little bit of radioactive activity left. Um, you know, my legs felt like lead, you're still swollen, you know, your hormones are imbalanced. Um, part of the surgery, you know, when they take out your thyroid, sometimes, unfortunately, they have to take out what's called your parathyroid glands. Those are the glands that are tiny next to the thyroid that regulate your calcium. So when those accidentally get shocked or taken out, then your calcium levels go down. And when your calcium levels go down, you start twitching and tingling. 
And it was kind of funny because when I went for my follow-up to uh, see my endocrinologist that was treating me, you know, I'm tingling and twitching. And I said to him, oh, I guess this is normal because, you know, obviously as a physician, you understand the physiology of what's going on in your body. And it was kind of funny. He goes, no, it's not normal, but it's expected, you know. So it's kind of, you know, those are the symptoms you deal with. But I would say after two or three weeks, you know, you start to kind of feel a little bit better. But to be honest, it really took a full year to really feel like I'm getting back to myself. And it wasn't like you really get back to yourself, but it's what in any cancer patient, I say, it's your new normal. And you got to get used to the new normal. And it's okay, because now, my new normal, I don't even remember what the old normal was. And it's fine, you know, because I went from someone who never took a pill except for my vitamins to now, you know, I got to be religious, not to skip my thyroid medicine, not because I need the hormone replacement, but it's very important, even though it's 10 years later to keep my levels suppressed. And when you keep your levels suppressed, you know, you do develop side effects, like at one point, you know, I develop palpitations and you're at increased risk for heart rhythm abnormalities because, you know, the heart doesn't like, you know, high levels of thyroid hormone in its body because it's being overstimulated. So then that's when you have to have a conversation with your treating doctor. How much can I tolerate of the palpitations risk of going into a cardiac um, irregular rhythm such as atrial fibrillation? versus keeping the cancer at bay. Obviously, now that I'm 10 years out, I can afford to go higher up on my th um, thyroid levels, which is the TSH, which is what they measure. You know, before I literally had to keep them undetectable or very suppressed. Now we can go a little bit higher because my risk has decreased. And then another thing that happens sometimes, again, I'm referring to patients that have had radioactive iodine treatment, you get latent side effects, like sometimes you get joint inflammation, uh, your salivary glands get affected because, you know, even though the target of the radioactive iodine is to kill the thyroid, it does kill other healthy tissues. So in my case, it killed my salivary gland. So I deal with dry mouth. So anytime I'm eating or drinking something, I always have to have water, not drinking, obviously, but I need to have fluid because my mouth is constantly dry. So that's one of the side effects of having high doses of radioactive um, treatment. Or sometimes your tear ducts, like I have a tear duct that collapse. So I have an eye that tears, but that's okay. It's the stuff that you can live with. You know, I can always try to surgically open it up, but it's not guaranteed. And I'm of the philosophy of less is more. Um, I know other people would go ahead and have surgery and other things done to themselves. But, you know, my criteria is if I can live with it and it doesn't bother me, then I don't go pursuing further treatment or remedy for it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so much. And then I guess right in the midst of all that and when you're feeling the side effects, you also started training for the New York Marathon. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. I can I can totally see how that was a crutch for you during such a difficult time. Well, I was very, like I said, I was very motivated because I'm not a quitter. And once I 
say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Um, so I had reached out to my marathon team and explained to them the situation because I, I, at one point after the radioactive iodine, you know, I was getting a little concerned because I could barely walk outside. Um, you know, and my legs felt like lead. And then the other thing was when we first um, started the treatment, you know, when I told the doctor, you know, I forgot what day it was in November. Uh, I said, will I be able to run the New York City Marathon November, whatever. It's the first weekend in November. And his response was yes. So that made me feel good. The problem is, if you're asking a physician that doesn't run marathons, they don't understand. You don't just show up to the start line and run. And that was the understanding of the treating physician because what happened was two weeks into after my surgery i was given clearance to start running so when i started running my incision got irritated and with the sweat and i wasn't sure if it was infected or not so i went to see a local surgeon here in town because obviously it's very high to hard to get on a plane to fly up to cleveland to see my surgeon so I went to see a local surgeon for the him to examine my incision and to tell me if it was infected. And he asked me, well, how did you get it all sweaty? And I told him while I was running outside. And his response is, are you nuts? He goes, what are you doing running outside when you're being uh, treated for thyroid cancer? You're being made clinically hypothyroid. You're going to pass out and die. And he instilled this fear in my head, which... He over-exaggerated also because he didn't understand the physiology of running. Um, and then again, this is why you have to be careful. I understand, obviously, physicians want to be careful with their patients. And, you know, in the back of our heads, we're always thinking about liability, if we're going to be honest. Um, but again, you have to be careful how you talk to a patient, especially a cancer patient, because I had been running and feeling good. And then when he said that to me, it did affect me mentally because then right away I called up my team in Cleveland and I said, listen, you said I could run and blah, blah, blah. And now I'm being told I'm gonna pass out and die in the street. And then they clarified. And then they said, well, they said, we didn't realize we were gonna be training uh, for the marathon right now, you know, you asked if you could run on this day and we said yes. But that being said, we still feel it's safe that you run, but you obviously have to take precautions. And they, you know, told me things I need to be careful with and look out for. And it was okay to run. But once you hear the, that negativity and those words from someone else, it doesn't still fear. And I remember that during that time, those those six weeks that I was trying to run before my radioactive iodine, I was scared and I wasn't running as fast or enjoying it as much because now I felt like I was walking on a tightrope. So that was one part of it. And then the second part of it was when I did start getting discouraged, I again, I reached out to my marathon team and the person that they used or would recommend for training who was, quote, a coach, 
I'll not use his name because I'll never say anything negative about someone, but I do not think he was a very nice or good person because his response was, again was, you've never run a marathon and now you're going to try to run a marathon and go through cancer treatment. And again, he thought I was crazy. And again, that's very discouraging to hear things, especially if you're a motivated, determined individual. Now, I could understand if we were talking the Boston Marathon where they have strict time limits or you're going to run the Tokyo Marathon where they have cutoffs. But something like, I don't know how familiar people are with the New York City Marathon, it goes on all day. I mean, they're there till midnight letting people cross the finish line. So it's not like you have X amount of time. So luckily at that time, I found uh, some friends that I had that actually referred me to the team and training coaches, which is another charity. And I talked to one of the team and training coaches and he was very nice and he was practical and said, yes, it can be done, you know, but we're going to modify things, you know, and this is how we're going to do it. And he saw my treatment schedule and he basically coordinated how much I should run and everything between now and the treatment um, periods that I need to be, you know, resting or not be as strenuous and to the start line of the New York City Marathon. So for 2012, you know, the marathon got canceled because of Hurricane Sandy. So all this work and everything, I show up to New York City and then you know, I pick up my bib, they snap a picture of me with my bib. And then shortly after, like literally within, I would say 10 minutes, they said the New York City Marathon is canceled because New York is still recovering for uh, Hurricane Sandy. But oh my this gosh. Is, <laughs> so this is, I, I cried, but obviously I also cried for the people that were affected by a hurricane. Obviously, you and me living in Southwest Florida, dealing with what happened with Ian and Katrina and other hurricanes that have flown through here, we understand. But there's always a silver lining in everything. So what happened was, you know, all the runners, because unfortunately they waited until runners were up in New York City um, to cancel it. What happened is we decided to organize what's called Run Anyway. And so we organized all the runners up in New York City and we collected canned goods and things for the hurricane victims. And we ran five loops in Central Park, which was actually the original uh, New York City Marathon course. So we did that. So I did run my 26.2 miles. I got cheered on by my friends and my support crew that was there. And New York Road Runners nicely sent me the 2012 New York City a marathon medal and that of all the medals and of all the races has the most special sentiment in my heart. Wow. So you had all that happened in 2012. You ended up running a marathon that was a real marathon distance wise, but, and, and I guess the original course and then fast forward. Now you're actually one of the few people who have accomplished the six world major marathons almost twice your last race is tokyo which is happening this year 2023 yes. so tell us a little bit about your journey so how did that um cancer diagnosis and first marathon catapult you into becoming the runner that you are right now so 
what happened was uh, New York City Marathon, obviously, you know, we did it in Central Park. But, you know, it's even though I, I ran the distance and everything, it wasn't the official marathon. So I wanted to run the official marathon. So I got deferred for the following year, which would be 2013. But unfortunately, in 2013, I was injured and obviously in no shape to run. So at that point, I thought, okay, well, my running days are over. I guess that's it. But in the meantime, I have one of my very good friends. He got inspired. And apparently, I was inspiring people who had watched me do the 2012 New York City Marathon. So they got into running. And I didn't realize that you could actually inspire people because I always refer to myself as what I call the accidental runner. You know, I just fell into it. It wasn't like I was really trying or trying to inspire or do anything for anyone. I just was doing my thing. So my friend Mario's his name. He comes up with these crazy ideas and he goes to me, he goes, Maria, he's like, why don't we run the Paris Marathon? So now we're into 2015. And I'm like, are you nuts? And he goes, I go, I'm, I'm injured in this and I'm feeling sorry for myself. And he's like, you're not injured. You're fine. You can do it. So we went to Paris and that's when I ran my first marathon. But something special happened in Paris, and we're talking 2015, I had a lot of doubt, like, can I do it? It, it? it was my first official marathon. And there's a difference between unofficially doing five loops in Central Park and really being at the start line with other runners that have actually prepared or are in great shape. So for me, Paris is what made me fall in love with the running community. And let me tell you why. Because when I first started the course, you know, I was probably into mile one or two and the pain in my left leg started acting up. You know, that sharp pain you get from IT band for anyone who's ever experienced it. And I don't know where or how it happened, but I just felt runners go by and they tap me on the shoulder. And there was something about that tap on the shoulder and that touch that energized me. And it made me feel like, oh, I can do this. And so then I started running, but I would stop and walk a little bit because, you know, it would start to hurt. And then the next thing I know, just a random runner, she was European, I could tell by her accent, she saw that I was struggling and she grabbed my hand. And she said, come on, let's do this. Because the other thing is when it's your first marathon, you have a hard time, at least I did, finding your rhythm. Because you see all these runners going by you and you're like, do I need to go their pace? And do I need to keep up with them? Or what do I do? And you, and, and, and you feel nervous. And this is why one of the lessons learned from that that I always tell any runner at any race is, remember, it's your race, your pace. Don't worry about what the others are doing around you. Focus on yourself. But this runner grabbed my hand and she started running, holding my hand. I could tell she was a fast runner, but she had stopped, slowed down to hold my hand. And then she helped me find my pace. And then I realized I don't want to hold this runner behind and I appreciated what she did for me. 
And I said to her, I got it, I got it. And she goes, are you sure? And I said, I do, I promise you I'll finish. And then she went off and then I found my rhythm and I felt good. And then I, I ran, 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 ran. And then obviously towards the end of the marathon, probably like around mile, you know, 22, I would say, you know, that's again, you start walking and slowing down and you have all the little stragglers that are with you. And that's where I met this lovely lady um, from uh, London, Sue. And to this day, she is my friend. So she and me started talking and we crossed that finish line together. We hugged each other and we've kept in touch. I go to London a lot. We visit with each other. And that marathon just showed just the beauty and the support and how you make friendships during a race. So it's not necessarily the athletic endurance of running a marathon, but it's also the relationships and just touching other people and helping other people that made me fall more in love with marathon running. So after that, you have that runner's high and you mm -hmm. think, okay, that's it. But then that's when I got into the New York City Marathon, which was 2015. So again, I get into the New York City Marathon. Everybody's like excited because everybody knows this is my dream marathon. And they're like, oh, she's going to do it. And of course, I'm all like happy, happy and posting like crazy on social media and everybody's watching. And what happens? I twist my ankle and I get, I think it was like a grade three sprain. And so I, I go crying to my hotel room. And of course, I start texting all my medical colleagues. And I texted one of my friends who's a podiatrist. And, he, and I showed him a picture and I showed him where it hurts. He's excellent. He's here at local. Dr. Kevin Lamb, I highly recommend him. And he goes, oh, you know, he goes, you may have a, a calcaneus fracture. He goes, you need to go uh, get that x-ray. You can't just, like, ignore it. So, of course, I'm in Times Square. I was staying at the Hilton in Times Square. And I start crying. I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to miss the New York City Marathon. And, again, this is why I think it's important to be kind to people because I've been fortunate with the kindness that I've encountered so here I am going, trying to find an urgent care center in Times Square, crying. And uh, I guess I didn't realize that I didn't go into an urgent care center. I went into a podiatry office. I didn't realize because the signs are not clear. So there's this man sitting there in uh, the front desk, and I'm crying. And I, said, and I said, I have to run the New York City Marathon on Sunday. This was Friday. And I said, and I need a podiatrist, and I need an x-ray. And the guy turns and looks up at me, and he goes, well, I'm a podiatrist. He says, what's going on? And so I explained to him what's going on. And long story short, I guess it was like a hairline fracture. It was fractured, but non-displaced, but not bad enough that it should stop me from running the marathon. Obviously, I was going to be in a lot of pain, but it wouldn't like destroy my foot if I decide to proceed with it. And I had to get a special compression bracelet. Come Sunday, I buckled up, everybody tuned in to Facebook, and I ran and got my official New York City Marathon under my belt. And that was 2015. That's pretty big. So, I mean, I guess you can say that 
You're a person that works best under pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So now um, the last thing I want to talk to you about briefly is you have a running group that you established and maybe you can tell us about it. So as I said, running is an addiction because A, you like the physical activity of being out there and running, the people you meet, the friendships you meet, and the people you inspire. So as time progressed, I realized, you know, there's people out there that sometimes need help or motivation. And I have my sister, who's also an avid runner, and she started running in 2012. She hated running, but she did it because she wanted to support me. And she knew that she didn't, that I didn't like people hovering over me. So she realized the way she's going to show me support is by running. And then throughout all the races of running the world majors, I came across my friends, George, Mike, and Dave, and they are all in New York City. And obviously, New York City Marathon is a race that I still try to do every year, including the other races they have, like the United Half, the Brooklyn Half, or during the Brooklyn Half this year in May. And we did it last year. So last year, uh, we were all sitting together and we realized, okay, this is how we have fun. And we wanted to compete to get on Team Ultra. Team Ultra is a team sponsored by Michelob Ultra that um, gets athletes into the New York City Marathon. And I decided, you know, this is the group of people that I have the most fun with. Wouldn't it be fun to run the New York City Marathon with this group of people? So what really started is us trying to get on to Team Ultra, which we successfully all did, really turned into our running group and our running page and really our running community called the Fabulous Five Friends. And the reason it's called the Fabulous Five Friends is not because we're fabulous, but it's because in life, as I've encountered, everybody needs a fabulous friend. And a fabulous friend is someone that's going to show up for you. They're going to show up for you to help you when you're going through a hard time, whether you're injured, going through cancer, financial hardship, losing your job, breakup, whatever it is. But they're also going to be there to celebrate your accomplishment of getting your six stars, of getting your first marathon done or opening and starting a new business or getting married. It's just a friend that shows up for good or bad. And that's what we try to do. We try to be a support community to help those in achieving their goals, um, especially those that want to run the Abbott World Majors, because it is a hard goal, you know, because you're going to six different marathons and three of them are outside the U.S. So it's not an easy goal, but it's more even if you don't want to run the World Majors, if you just want to run a 5K, 10K, half marathon, and we accept everybody. We accept you whether you're fast, you're slow, you're um, whatever your body type is, whatever your sexual orientation, it's a no judgment zone. And that's what we're all about. I love that. And for the people that want to join you guys and learn more about your journey and see all that, maybe you can tell us your uh, socials for, for both, for you and the group. So for the group, it's just basically fabulous five friends. So it's fabulous underscore five underscore friends. And my own personal page, 
which does a little bit of mind, body, soul, because I also am a guest columnist for the USA Today Network. Mine is running with the butterflies, running underscore with underscore the underscore butterflies. That's awesome. Maria, thank you so much uh, for coming and talking to me. And perhaps we can have the other fabulous five members on here for joint conversation about, you know, everything that you guys do. It'd be kind of fun. Oh, I think that would be awesome if we get the whole group in uh, to talk with you. And Letty, thank you so much for taking the time and interest to speak with me. Of course. And you keep inspiring, Maria. And uh, hopefully we'll see you. I guess I'll see you at Boston at the latest. Yeah, Boston. And that's when uh, one of the fabulous five friends, Stephanie's getting her sixth star. So we're going to be having a big celebration. So hopefully everyone that's up in the area and wants to join in, everybody's welcome. That's the other thing that our group does is we organize events and meetups and everybody's always welcome. That'll be awesome. I can't wait. Keep me posted on that. I will. All right. You have a good day. <laughs> All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks again, Maria, for coming on. I had a great time speaking with you, and I can't wait to see you again at the latest, I guess, at the Boston Marathon. I think always those um, the inspirational stories are good. I think it's good always to put stuff into perspective. So it's always fun because uh, maybe it can prove someone's outlook on life. Yeah, very true. And so, Letty, what are we doing next week? So next week I'll be traveling. I'm going to Celebration Florida for the half marathon that they are hosting. And so... I guess we'll do a recap and then after that we'll do the promised lactate threshold episode. Um, we have done the episode on VO2 max in 139, episode 139. And so hopefully in a couple of weeks we'll be able to have another one of, of those, uh, learning episodes, which I get really good feedback on. It just takes a little bit more time to prepare. Yeah. Hopefully it's, it's, it's great to hear people are getting something out of it or they enjoy it that's what's that's why we're trying to do it that's why we're here all right so that's it for today until next week have a good week of running thanks for tuning in for more information head to www.runningpodcast.us and as always have a great week of running